God, we want to give you thanks that you are a God that just truly makes yourself known to us. Um, God, we could never know who you are unless you uh, made a step uh, in revealing yourself, and you didn't have to. Um, you, there's no reason you weren't obligated to us to do so, but you did. And God, in so many ways, part of our shame is that we squander the knowledge that we have of you, who you are. And we worship and serve created things rather than our creator. And we give ourselves away wholeheartedly and passionately to things that just really can't give us life or sustain us in life. And yet, God, you, in your great kindness and in your love, continue to pursue us and chase after us in order to restore and redeem and reconcile us back to yourself. And God, we pray that that's... What would happen here this morning, that's what would happen as we read through your word, that's what would happen as we see your heart unveiled for us in this great book over the next several weeks together. And so we pray for your blessing upon this morning, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to begin, chapter 1, verse 1, we'll only go down to verse 3. Uh, if you guys don't have Bibles, we do have Bibles in the back, please feel free to take a Bible if you don't own one, that's our gift to you guys, um, but definitely... Uh, uh, be in the habit of, you know, bringing your Bibles to church. Uh, we do like to put verses up on the screen for you guys as a convenience, but uh, uh, we would be great for you guys to have your Bibles. So anyways, Jonah chapter 1 verse 1 says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare, and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So this is how this great story starts. In short, it starts with God calling Jonah to go do something, and then Jonah failing to do that. Jonah actually deliberately doing the exact opposite, which we'll unpack that more in a moment. A um, couple things I want to start off by basically noting that make Jonah, this book, very unique. Uh, and distinct in a lot of ways from a lot of different types of uh, uh, prophets uh, in the Old Testament. So first thing you need to understand is that throughout the Bible, there's different types of what we call genre, different types of styles of literature throughout the Bible. You need to know this, especially if you want to read the Bible and try to make sense of it. Um, if you read, for example, the book of Revelation as if it's narrative, it'll, you'll be stuck. Or read Proverbs as if it's narrative. Uh, that's not the type of language that it is. It's genre. There's different types of genre that classify. So, for example, um, the book of Jonah is considered prophetic, uh, but it's also narrative. Um, the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, are all narrative, meaning it just tells a storyline. Uh, several of the books in the New Testament, like what Paul's epistles are typically identified as, we describe those as teaching or didactic, meaning uh, they are written as a means of instruction. You read those things, you develop certain forms of instruction as to what, in other words, when you read, say, for example, the book of uh, Ephesians, you're not learning about Paul. It's not an autobiography. So you're reading something that's not telling you about the life of Paul, you're reading something about the life of the church. In other words, how we are to function and act within the family of God or the church. So, first of all, we need to understand that the book of Jonah is basically identified as prophetic writing. But what makes the book of Jonah very unique is because most prophets and prophetic writing uh, typically has a, a, a normal pattern or template by which they operate. So typically what happens is a prophet's called by God, the prophet goes out and communicates, and for the rest of the book, what you basically get, for the most part, is the message of the messenger, 
What's unique about Jonah, at least in the very first thing, first slide we'll see, is that with the book of Jonah is rather than so much getting the storyline or the message from the messenger, uh, next slide, what you actually get is the story of the messenger. So it's, in a lot of ways, it's an autobiographical or a biographical story of the life of Jonah, which makes it very unique like that because you don't have a lot of Old Testament books that are basically the story of a particular person, especially when it is prophetic type of literature, which is one of the things, like I said, that makes Jonah really unique with regard to that. Um, the reason why I say it's either biographical or autobiographical basically depends upon what you take you uh, approach uh, the book, whether Jonah had wrote it or not or somebody else had written about it. Um, I believe personally Jonah probably wrote it, um, but therefore it's semi-biographical. But anyways, the next thing that kind of makes the book of Jonah unique is that most prophets, they spoke exclusively as voices from God to the people of Israel. Jonah's unique in that Jonah's message is not at all for Israel. Jonah's message is exclusively for the opposite of Israel. In other words, actually you can go so far as that Jonah's message is actually for Israel's enemies. Or pagans. Jonah is told by God to go to this region called, in region in Assyria called uh, Nineveh to preach to them a message that God is going to give Jonah. It's a message of justice, judgment uh, or justice, but it's also a message that's motivated by pity, meaning God loves the Ninevites that at the very last verse of the entire book, chapter 4, God says, I pity these people. I have, I have sorrow for these people. I have deep agony for this group of people that don't know their left hand from the right, which basically is a Hebrew euphemism of describing they're just in ignorance. They're in darkness. I mean, think about it this way. When you're in pitch black darkness, you don't need to know your right hand from your left because you can't see it. You, you can't use them. They're non-functioning. And so what really God is saying is that I love this nation of people called the Assyrians, of which the capital is the Ninevites. I want you to go to them and preach to them a message. So the message that we see in the story of Jonah is exclusively a message given to uh, Ninevites, or if you want to think of it this way, non-Jews or pagans. So what I want to begin to look at this morning are basically three specific things I think we can sort of derive from the text, so from the first three verses. One, uh, I want to take a look at the redemptive purposes of God, that God has a theme or there's a plan in which God is at work seeking to unfold or unpack that he brings Jonah into this. So the first thing, we'll take a look at that redemptive purposes of God. Second thing in verse three, we'll take a look at Jonah being this rebel prophet. That Jonah goes the opposite of direct, opposite direction from God. He becomes a rebel, goes rogue on God. Uh, the prophet's job is to basically work for God. He doesn't work for God. He basically is uh, self-employed and ends up kind of using himself as the main means to run his own life and gets himself into trouble. And then finally, I want to finish with some thoughts, kind of asking the question, what is the way to repentance? Because in reality, I think what we'll discover as we read the story is that in a lot of ways, we're just like Jonah. I think in a lot of ways, Jonah's written in such a way to basically kind of present a mirror to say, in a lot of ways, hello everyone, you're just like this. Uh, we run from God. God tells us to do something, we run from God. We might in action, in activity do it, but in reality, in some ways, like Jonah, what we'll see Jonah ends up doing what God wants him to do, but in his heart, he still uh, is basically praying, hoping, wishing, waiting for judgment to come upon these people whom he hates, all right? So we'll get to that more in a second. So one, we'll look at redemptive purposes of God. Second, the rebel prophet. Three, uh, the path of repentance and how do we get there. So 
Let's jump in and begin to look at the redemptive purposes of God. Verses 1 and 2, I want to read this again. We'll unpack this a little bit further. Verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, which is, this phrase is actually kind of a common phrase throughout the Old Testament. And uh, as I already alluded to that, Jonah is actually a prophet. And prophets' jobs, for the most part, were basically to be the spokesman, or the, the voice for God to the people. So the thing you need to understand, we'll again kind of make mention of this more in just a moment, the way that God worked all the time, and by the way, God still works this way, by the way, is God always works through agents, agencies. Um, God finds people, and he basically works through those people. God has always done this. We see God doing this with uh, uh, Adam and Eve, that God called Adam and Eve to basically represent the life of God upon the planet, all right? To go and be fruitful, to multiply, to cultivate the earth, to exercise dominion over all the things he is. What was God asking Adam and Eve to do? Basically the same things that God does. Uh, they're not going to be God, but they will be creative like God. They will cultivate like God. They will make and manufacture things like God. Uh, in other words, they were to be image bearers of God. They were to represent their lives as basically mirroring who God is. Obviously they sinned, they fell, and then later God would basically call Abraham. Abraham was called by God to be an agent. An agent of what? An agent of blessing. How would God do that? God would bless Abraham and then bring blessing through Abraham. Again, agency. Israel. Uh, ultimately, in the storyline of the history of the people of Israel, what you see is uh, a nation, just a random nation. But it's a random nation that God selected, God called, uh, God ordained. Or if you're daring enough, God predestined. He called Israel to be his unique, special people to be and bear testimony and bear witness to what he wanted them to do. Again, agency. God called Israel not because they were special, powerful, good, better, more ethical, more moral than every other nation. Because if you know anything about the history, they were just as bad as every other pagan nation. And yet God called them to be an agent of blessing. How would God do that? God would bless Israel and then through Israel bless the nations. Okay? So, in a lot of ways, this is exactly what we see God doing sort of on a microcosm of a way with Jonah. He's calling Jonah to be blessed, then through Jonah to be a blessing or to bring blessing. So he calls Jonah. And let me, let me say one other thing. We can read this book, you know, from 3,000, 3,500 years later, and we see these prophets, and we're like, we have this tendency to turn them into like demigods or heroes. We're like, oh my gosh, the prophets were amazing. If I had the opportunity to be a prophet, I would. Right? Some of you guys kind of act like that, and you're probably a dude, and you're probably between the ages of 18 and 25. Right? You act like prophets. You live like, you yeah, sell everything. And at some point, you'll get married, and everything will change. But the point of the matter is, there is this tendency for us to kind of look at our lives and be like, we, we sort of uh, uh, turn these prophets into these, this really highly coveted vocation. Look, let me, let me be quite frank with you. Being a prophet was one of the worst things that could happen to you if you were living in Israel that day. You didn't grow up, you didn't wake up in the morning and be like, you know what, I want to be a prophet of God. Because prophets were hated. Everybody hated the prophets. Nobody wanted to be friends with the prophets. As a prophet, in fact, I'll even prove it to you. Oftentimes when a prophet was called or selected by God to enter into that vocation, they try to get out of it. Jeremiah argues with God saying, I'm too young. Uh, Moses says, I got to stutter, God, I can't talk. God says, like, we'll take care of that. I made your mouth. 
That's not a hindrance for me. That's not a problem for me. That's not too big of an issue for me. We'll work it out. The point of the matter is, is Moses didn't want the job. Jeremiah didn't want the job. Most of these guys didn't want the job because they knew what the, what the vocation of prophet entailed. Okay? So I, I just want to sort of demythologize for you this sort of picture that you might have in your mind of these prophets as being this unbelievable vocation, that these were the sanctified holy people that everybody wanted to be like. They were not. It was a dreaded position. And for some, to some degree, you'll see why it's so big, because Jonah's called by God to go do something that is so opposite of what he wants to do that he goes the opposite direction. We'll see that in a moment here. So I want to begin to jump into this even further. In verse 2, he says this, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for its evil has come up against me, or come up before me. So what we see is that God actually calls Jonah, this prophet, to then go to the city called Nineveh. I want to show you a slide. I'll show you a little bit of a um, geographical picture of what the region looks like and what we're talking about. So if you see the area kind of in the bottom uh, right, that's Joppa. That's the seaport that Jonah's going to go to. That city actually still exists. I had an opportunity of being able, be able, being able to go there a few times. It's really beautiful. It's right in the Mediterranean. And um, so Jonah probably would have been somewhere, we don't, you know, somewhere in the area of, of Israel, but he would have made his way down to Joppa. And then he would have gone to or wanted to go to the area of Tarshish. So you can see it's almost the exact opposite end of the earth. Now, if you can think of it this way, most scholars and historians believe that Tarshish probably would have been the southernmost part of what's modern-day Spain. So it's just past the region of Gibraltar. So if you think of it this way, for mariners, people that were just sort of kind of figuring out the ocean and how far it goes, that kind of represented the ends of the earth. Like beyond that, there's sea monsters, right? They eat you and giant squid. And so, you know, all this type of stuff, all this mythology that was sort of built up around that. So in Jonah's mind, he's like, I want to go the exact opposite direction from where God's telling me, which is Nineveh. This is kind of the step that he goes. But what I find amazing to me in the story here is that God makes a statement about Nineveh. He says this, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. That phrase, great city, um, some scholars have sort of pondered on trying to figure out what does that mean? Does greatness just simply imply largeness, or does greatness imply something that God actually cares about? And some scholars have suggested actually both, that one, we know it's a very large city because at the end of the book, God actually tells us the population of the city of Nineveh. It's 120,000 people. Now, if you know anything about ancient cultures and civilizations, you know that that's a very, very large city. In a lot of ways, that's actually a large city, at least in, in, in some modern circles today, now, we've got cities that are in millions, so in a lot of ways, they're dwarf, you know, that's, that city's dwarfed by these big, massive cities like that. But for the most part, cities back then, cities uh, were oftentimes identified by two specific things. One, proximity and density. And oftentimes, what marked out or defined a particular city back in that day was a wall. So you would go into a region, uh, location, or proximity, and you would densely populate that region within the walls, that's what would basically be defined as a city. So cities, a common city back in the ancient world, uh, kind of a, a semi-large city, just to kind of give you a little bit of a perspective, could be around 3,000 to 4,000 people. That would be a large city. Nineveh was 120,000. So you've got to think of it this way. But not only that, Nineveh was also kind of the capital city of a region or of an empire called the Assyrians. Uh, scholars, historians actually believe that Nineveh was actually perhaps could be the oldest city 
um, that's ever existed. Um, it actually originally appears in Genesis chapter 10 when after uh, the flood, these people start going around and start building and creating new areas that Nineveh becomes one of the first regions in the region of Mesopotamia to begin to be populated. So by the time of Jonah, uh, it had become basically a very, very wicked place. But what I want to suggest to you is that the message that God is going to give to Jonah to go communicate to the people of Nineveh uh, is going to be described as basically a message of judgment. You know, repent, otherwise you will be destroyed. And there's a tendency for us to hear that and think that it's really kind of harsh, it's kind of cruel. cruel. Why would God do that? But in reality, if you look at the very last verse in the book of Jonah, in fact, let's read it. The last verse in the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, says this. Let's start at verse 10. It says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant, which God basically, by grace, gives Jonah this nice little plant. Uh, It's a hot day. You know, he's living in a desert. Uh, He takes rest underneath the shade of this plant, um, which we'll get to that. But verse 11 says this. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? Again, God reiterates the emphasis upon that great city. In other words, the word pity can also mean God has compassion. God feels something for this city. God cares, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, In other words, God's warning that he wants Jonah to bring to this great city is a warning that Nineveh would turn so that God would then in turn bless. If you want to put it this way, God's ultimate end for Nineveh was not judgment, but their blessing. You need to know that. Because two things I think are really important to note here. One, God actually cares about cities. God cares about pockets in our culture whereby they're defined, defined by density or population. God actually cares about cities. Think about it this way. Cities represented places where people would go and culture would basically be uh, kind of brought into there. And from there, it would, you know, think of it as sort of like this mixing pot where all sorts of cultures come together. And out of that culture, you get really good food. You get unbelievable music. You get beautiful art. You get creative people, all sorts of creative types, musicians, artists, all coming together, working together, because this is where the density of the people come together. In fact, I'll go so far as to say, at the end of the book of the Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation, God is going to present a picture of a renewed earth, a renewed planet, and guess where we're going to be? A city. He describes this new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven, which is a brand new city, a city that is renewed after the image of God. We need to understand is that God loves people. And where people congregate, where there's density of people, we call those cities, God cares about that. Look, at the end of the day, think of it this way. The problem that we have in this world today is that where there's a greater density of fallen, sinful people, you have a greater density of what? Greater fallenness. There's more murders in cities. There's more sex trafficking in cities. There's more addiction of gambling and sex addiction in cities. There's more wickedness and more evil that comes out of cities. There's more all sorts of uh, crime that comes out of cities because of the density of populations. But God's intention, God's desire is to redeem people so that when they gather together in these highly densely populated areas, rather than evil coming out of these cities, good comes out of it. Rather than dirty art coming out of it like pornography, beautiful art comes out that gives some sort of representation of the beauty and the greatness of God. 
music, rather than it being evil and wicked and dark and somehow emphasizing grotesque things that just are not pleasing to God, music can come out that's actually awesome and really good and beautiful and somehow is a testimony to the greatness of God. That God actually cares about people and people congregate in cities and God cares therefore about cities. And so therefore, what God is basically saying to Jonah is I care about this great city, Nineveh. But like I said, when you get a congregation, a gathering of people together that are not redeemed, that are in their ignorance, that are stuck in their sin, trapped in their sin, seduced by wickedness and evil, what you have is populations giving birth, cultivating wickedness and evil. And this is what God says, what I want to do is I want to redeem it. And the way that God's going to redeem it is through an agent. His agent happens to be the prophet Jonah. But prophet Jonah, the prophet Jonah has gone rogue. And that kind of leads us into the next thing. So what we see as we go on is that Jonah is identified as sort of this rebel prophet. It's kind of an interesting twist in the story because really Jonah is not the good guy in the story. Um, There's all sorts of irony within the storyline because what you'll find is Jonah, the prophet of God, is the one who's in rebellion. And the rebellious city, this great wicked city, are the ones that lovingly or repent to the love of repent before God. It's this really strange irony within the story. In some ways, as I was reading this, I thought, um, I was kind of unpacking this and reading through this. In a lot of ways, it's sort of the Old Testament account of the prodigal son. Where on the one hand, you have sort of this one group of people that are very religious and yet unwilling, unbending to the father's will. And then you have sort of this rogue younger son who's wicked and evil, spending his life just living it up. But at the end of the day, he repents and turns and God throws a party. And yet the older brother's angry. It's where Jonah's at. It's Jonah chapter four. We'll get there. He's not happy. In fact, this story ends with great ambiguity. Uh, Like a read earlier, the story ends in chapter 11, or chapter 4, verse 11, where it just sort of stops. Basically, God just saying, don't I have the right to care for this great city? And then it's like, it's over. It's done. It's the end of the story. It's kind of this weird, ambiguous end where we don't really know exactly what's going on in Jonah. But again, like I said, the story's really not so much about Jonah. He's not the hero. He plays into the storyline, but the hero is God. And the picture of God is a God that loves and cares and desires to redeem and restore. And God does this by way of agency. And God does this through the agent of the prophet Jonah. So we see in verse 3, I'll read it. He says this, but Jonah. That's kind of funny. As I was originally reading this, that, that word but is, forms a transition into the passage in the text. So on the one hand, I mean, if when God came to Jonah and says, go to that great city. And then the story said, and Jonah went. I mean, the word and would have been this nice transition. That's the one that we're really looking for. And Jonah went. <laughs> but that's not what happens. The, the word but gets thrown in there. But, in other words, it's sort of this impending like, uh-oh, <laughs> what's about to happen is probably not good because it's not the path that God had intended. So what we see, it starts off in verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa to find a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare, and he went on board to go to Tarshish. Now, what's interesting is that when it says that Jonah turned from God to flee from the presence of God, I mean, on the one hand, all Jews who would have been familiar with the story of their 
this, this prophet, but also even more importantly, God, they know that they can't flee from God. So what is this euphemism of fleeing from the presence of God? It basically implies sort of this idea to, in essence, rather than looking at God face to face and receiving direction from God and then going in the direction that God says, it basically gives a picture of turning your back to God and saying, I will go the direction I want to go. It's the idea of when someone is talking to you and you're sharing with them your heart or you're... Uh, telling them something that you're maybe concerned about in their life because you love them and you care about them, and then they turn on you, they turn their back against you. That, by implication, it's they're basically their way of saying, I'm not going to listen to you. Uh, the Old Testament kind of paints this picture of Israel from time to time as being stiff-necked. You ever thought what that meant? If you have a kid, or if you've ever been around somebody that has a little baby, an infant, you know what stiff-necked means, right? Do you ever try to put a kid into a car seat and they don't want to go in there? And they go like, they go bored on you. They go like stiff bored, like this. And they just straighten their back. That's stiff neck. They're basically saying, I refuse to let you mold me into anything, let alone a car seat or going to Nineveh or anywhere. I refuse. It's just stiff neck. It's the idea that's going on here. That he was running from, fleeing from the presence of God. He didn't want to be where God was. didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. The opposite of this, actually, is uh, another euphemism of being face-to-face. If you have intimate relationship with someone, meaning you love them, you care about them, you're have, you have friendship with them, the, the biblical picture of that is face-to-face, eye-to-eye. Like, for example, when Moses met with God, it says that Moses talked with God face-to-face. It's this picture of intimacy, this picture of, like, complete connectedness. Have you been in a conversation with somebody? And while you're talking to them, people are walking by. They're like, hey, what's up? Oh, hey, what's up? You know, that's frustrating. I hate that. I've talked with people before, and like, they're super popular, or whatever the case is. And everybody that comes by, they want to say hi to them. And they're, they're too cool to even like, talk to you. It's frustrating. Or they're like looking at their phone, texting. The point of the matter is, is talking eye to eye, face to face with somebody is a way of basically saying, you are valuable to me. What you're telling me is important. I want to know it. I want to learn it. I want to have it absorbed into my being because I want to do it. Jonah did the exact opposite. He turned from the presence of God and fled. In this case, we're told that Jonah fled down to Joppa. And again, the picture that's there in the text, I think, is, is significant. It's important. We're told that he goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. The language of down is significant. Scholars actually point out that, again, it's sort of another kind of euphemism. I mean, again, Jews recognize that God doesn't live up. God lives everywhere. But, again, because we have to use language, we're limited by this thing called language. We have to somehow figure out a word that we can understand and relate with to some degree. So oftentimes we think of God as inhabiting, you know, eternity or living in the heavens and whatnot. And so if that's the case, He's up there to say going down is sort of this euphemism of saying, I'm going away from him. There's this vertical disconnect that's happening. And that's what we see with Jonah. He's leaving, running, fleeing from the presence of God. So he goes down to Joppa, and he finds a ship. And he's, again, another interesting Hebrew phrase there. It says that he was willing to pay the fare. I was reading one commentary that actually said that, you know, again, some scholars debated over this, but... Uh, one guy suggested that him paying the fare was him basically saying he'd be willing to pay the entire fare of the entire ship so it doesn't have to wait around for any extra guests so it can just get on the water and leave as fast as it could. Now, again, think about it this way. This is the further, 
furthest most part ends of the earth from Joppa to that region of Tarshish. I don't even know what the exact opposite end of the world from San Luis Obispo is, but can you imagine if God's like, "Mm, go down to Cruzberg and just hang out with people and tell them about Jesus and love them. And you're like, no, I think I'll go to, I don't know, China, wherever, whoever's on the opposite end, right? I don't know. But the point of the matter is, that's going to be pretty expensive. So you go down, you know, you find an airplane, an airport, and you're willing to throw down, I don't know, 2400 bucks. how much is it going to cost to buy a ticket, and you know you're going to pay premium price, but it doesn't matter. You're willing to pay. This is what Jonah was doing, he was willing to pay. And the most ironic thing here is that there's always a boat Always something, always another vehicle to take you away from the presence of God. You need to know this. Because in reality, there's always something there that can just take us away. And usually what happens is we already have these desires in our heart. Look, at the end of the day, sin never really ever just happens to somebody. We get stuck in it at points, and our sin has repercussions and an impact upon other people, as we'll see next week, that Jonah's sin actually caused the entire boat to enter into this tumultuous storm. Everybody was impacted by Jonah's sin. But the reality is, is that sin doesn't just typically oftentimes just happen. It oftentimes it's nurtured. We cultivate it. We think about it. We meditate upon certain things in our hearts. We Describe it as fantasizing. We think of an image. We think of something. We think of if I had this or had this person or had this relationship, what you would do with that specific thing. And then what happens oftentimes is the perfect circumstances take place. Your heart's already been cultivating that, thinking about that. And we're just kind of looking for a convenient way to flee. And this is what happened with Jonah, is that he had a convenient opportunity to flee. And that ship was always there. Basically, the Bible is going to describe there's two major ways in which we can flee from God. There's two major ways in which we can oftentimes flee from God. I'll go through this very quickly. The first way we can describe it this way is you can run from God by being irreligious. This is obvious. This is like the big, obvious E on the I chart. Like, anybody can identify this. Like, oh, yeah, the dude who's like a meth addict, doesn't want to get out, he's stuck, he doesn't want God. Or the, you know, atheist who's cursing God. We can look at that and be like, oh, they're irreligious. They don't want God. They don't want relationship with God. They don't want a way out. They are just on self-destruct mode. It's easy for us to identify those types of people oftentimes. The less difficult type of people to identify or difficult ways to identify in which we run from God or flee from God, what I would describe as the religious, meaning it can be a type of person that wants to actually be in church, wants to read the Bible, wants to be around religious people, wants to be around uh, other things that are going on church-wise, functional-wise, and sometimes it's easy even within those types of people to somehow become very distant from God. Now, even though you might have some sort of knowledge about the Bible, the knowledge of who God is, you might know certain theological ideas and concepts, but in reality, your heart is not like God. That's the issue. Because what God intends for us is not so much that we would just know information about him, but that we would know him. And knowing him is not just simply us imitating him or trying to act our best as we can. It's being in relationship with him. So the reality is is that what God wants is not some sort of supplement for relationship, but relationship. 
In other words, he wants you. He loves you. He cares for you. And it's easy for us to get a little bit queasy about that or frustrated or troubled by that. We're like, ah, you know, I'd rather have a religion where I can memorize a certain groups of things, but the idea of actually having a relationship with God where I got to talk with him and tell him I love him, that seems kind of creepy and weird. I'm uncomfortable with that. But the reality is, is that oftentimes one of the indicators that we can look at to determine someone that runs from God by being religious is how do you treat other people that are irreligious, non-religious, the people that are straight up pagans or people that are straight up atheists or the people that are straight up in opposition to everything that you're all about, the people that are immoral. How do you treat those people? If you look at those people with a sense of like arrogance and pride and you look at them with the sense of hatred and anger and you judge them and you come down upon them, in a lot of ways what you're actually doing is you're looking at your own morality and saying, I'm a little bit better than them. Or I know more than they do. Or I act better than they do. Or my family is far more better and controlled and better acting than theirs are. But see, here's another way to identify it. How do you react towards other people that are also religious? Let's say those that are not as smart as you. That don't know as much doctrine or theology as you do. That don't worship or sing the same way that you do. See, the problem is oftentimes we have kind of this idea in which we like to single certain people out and make them sort of the enemy. But in reality, every single time we do that, what we're actually showing is that we are trusting in our own unique approach to knowing God. That is running from God by running into religion. We can flee from God by being irreligious. We can flee from God by being religious. In a lot of ways, this is exactly what was going on with the prodigal son. Sons, I should say. The younger son, total example of irreligious. Out sinning, out doing horrible things. He ends up coming back and God accepts him. The older son, very religious. He never violated his dad's rules. He always obeyed the father. He always did what the father told him to do. He always worked really hard. He's a really good, for all intents and purposes, good son. But in his heart, he despised his younger brother. And the father loved the younger brother. Do you see the disconnect? Jonah hated, hated the Ninevites. Why? All right, here's why. Assyria was basically the world-dominating empire. It was sort of the supernation of the ancient world. Uh, they dominated much of the Middle East, and oftentimes when they would go in, they were brutal. They would go into territories and regions, and they would basically uh, kill a lot of the men. And a lot of times the women, they would bring them back to their main, uh, their main capital city, which would have been Nineveh. And what they would do when they would bring the women back, um, they would impregnate them by Assyrians. And it would form sort of a half-breed. And by doing that, at some point, uh, when, when those women, those Jewish women would have children, there were no men there to kind of help carry on the traditions of is Israel, of uh, Jewish customs and traditions. So within a generation, you can literally commit genocide, not even by necessarily killing everybody, but somehow getting rid of all sorts of traditions. And so the Jewish people saw the Assyrians as a major threat. They hated them. They were offended by them. They disliked them. They were, in a lot of ways, the sworn enemy of the Jews. And so here's what happens. Basically, God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to the Ninevites. 
I want you to go to this people that, that you hate, by the way. And Jonah, we know by the end of the book, why Jonah was so resistant in going. Because in reality, what we're going to see by the end of the book is that Jonah, in chapter 4, he's going to say to God in kind of this prayer. He's going to say, God, I knew that if I preach to this sinful nation, your judgment, if they repent, you'll forgive them. In other words, that means they will become my brother. They will be brought into relationship with you. And if I have relationship with you and they have relationship with you, then that somehow brings us into the same community, the same sphere, the same level, the same playing field. And in Jonah's mind, he's like, I will never be compared to one of those wicked pagan Assyrians ever. <laughs> so he flees. Christians are funny. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian, obviously. If you're here, you love Jesus. But Christians are funny because Christians have this tendency to single out certain types of people they disagree with, they don't like, and then they demonize them. They demonize them. They find certain groups of people that maybe they're a little bit unfamiliar with their lifestyle or unfamiliar with how they act or unfamiliar with their theology or their doctrine, and they automatically write them off and somehow even some would even go so far to consign people to hell. And we, we've done this throughout history. I was just reading an article a couple of days ago, and it was describing just 40 years ago, uh, a church in South Carolina where basically the pastor had this sort of meeting with a bunch of the congregants, and they're trying to determine, should we allow black people in our congregation? Everybody unanimously voted no. 40 years ago. I mean, it's crazy. Like, we, we're shocked. We're like, God, how could that happen? Like, that, does, that seems so foreign and distant from us, but that happened in our nation not too long ago. And the point of the matter is they can use Bible verses to justify it, and everybody gets on board and they're like, yes. But here's the point. Can you imagine 40 years ago in that congregation, God coming to the pastor saying, I want you to go into the heart of the most blackest city, like black, meaning African-American black, and tell them I love them and I want to redeem them and I want to see radical salvation." I want to bless them, and I want you to be the agent through which my blessing will go to them. You got a problem now. Look, all of us, to some degree, are guilty of finding certain people that we deem our sworn enemy. There's certain segments of Christians that maybe to some degree placed on such a pedestal of morality. So therefore, their heroes are Fox News and people that wave that banner. So their sworn enemies are liberals. So they demonize them. Vice versa, there's Christians today that are like hardcore into social justice and helping out other people, and they're just like sleeping with a girlfriend or having sex behind their spouse's back. It's like no big deal, but because what really matters is social justice, helping people, and they demonize those that are in immorality. And the point of the matter is, is that we have this tendency to sort of look for people that are unlike us, demonize them, and wish the worst evil come upon them. And here's the story of Jonah. God says, go to the people that you hate, that you would never in a million years ever select to be your brother. Go tell them about me. And Jonah flees. 
Look, it's easy at this point to be like, I'll never be like Jonah. I love Jesus, and I journal, and, you know, I <laughs> listen to Christian radio, and I burned all my, like, secular albums, and, you know, it's like, you are, you're an awesome Christian, and you basically use that as your little badge of honor and greatness. But look, at the end of the day, who are the people in your life that you would look at and say, they're unredeemable? I wouldn't, even if God could save them, I would hope that God wouldn't save them. That's the story of Jonah. God intended to save the Ninevites because God cared about this great city that was going down a path of wickedness. God wanted to redeem, and God wanted to use an agent of Jonah to do this. The final thing I want to finish with is really this question. What's the way to repentance or the way out of this? Because the reality is, I think if you're honest, you have to look at yourself and say, we're just like Jonah. In so many ways, we're like Jonah. We might give lip service to God. We might claim to really love God and want to walk with God and serve God. But when it comes down to it, there are people in our lives that we subtly wish evil would come upon them. Because they have a different lifestyle than us. They act differently than us. They think different theological thoughts than we do. And yet God cares about them. This is a hard pill for us to swallow. But we have to. And if we don't, then all of us will be guilty at some point, to some degree, making God in our own image. And a God that we create in our own image, at the end of the day, cannot help you, and it cannot help anybody else. Because it's a God that you made and it's a God that's powerful in those areas you want to be powerful, but he's impotent in the areas where you don't want him to be powerful. When the God of the universe is a God that says, I'm mighty to save. I'm mighty to save people that are part of your little tribe, part of your little group of people, part of your little collective of, of friends. But I'm also to save, I'm mighty and powerful to save those people whom you deem worthy for my hottest judgment. And I might just save them as a means of putting them on display of my mighty power and greatness. So how do we keep our hearts from running from God? Because I think that's the issue that we've got to look at. There's two things I want to look at, two quotes I want to make before I jump in and finish with this. One is from an Old Testament scholar, a guy by the name of Walter Brueggemann. He says this, the assumption, there's a lot of assumption words in this, so just bear with it for a second. The assumption that assumes that I could just choose the good fails to assume that I'm seduced. In other words, what he's basically saying is that for us to just stop right here and be like, you know what, I'm going to be good now. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to be just do what Jonah didn't do and start following God in every particular way. We fail to see that the root problem goes deeper than that because it's really an issue of desires. It's not just external actions. It's not just what we do on the outside. It's not just where we go to church and whether or not we're showing up at a church service or whether or not we're going to a group of people where they're hanging out, praising Jesus. The real issue is where's our heart? Is our heart there? Because our body can be there, but our heart inside is resenting it and angry and frustrated. And that was the story of Jonah. Because finally Jonah, in chapter 3, does go to Nineveh, does preach the message. So if you're not careful to read the story, you might be like, isn't that great? Jonah did exactly what God wanted him to do. Did he? Did he really do what God wanted him to do? I mean, yes, he went to Nineveh. Yes, he spoke the message that God wanted him to do. But in Jonah's heart was all of this evil and darkness and hatred and spite and condemnation 
And he really was just simply waiting for the opportunity for the Ninevites to be crushed. He didn't love them. So how do we make sure that our hearts aren't just simply seduced? C.S. Lewis then would go on to say, great quote, he says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. If you just look at yourself as just being somebody that's slightly broken, or there's some improvements that can be done just to tweak you, to make you a little bit better, then you fail to see the depth of depravity and brokenness that goes way down deep. It's not just our actions, it's our attitudes, it's our hearts. Because as I said earlier, we can do the right things, but with a really wicked, evil attitude. If you're a parent, you know that one of the greatest things you want to do with your kids is not just get them to do the things that you ask them to do, but you want to get their hearts to want to do the things you want them to do. Does that make sense? Christianity is not about God just simply getting us to do the right things. Christianity is about God getting our hearts changed to want to do the right things. It's a major difference there. And so what we see that C.S. Lewis is basically pointing out is that the real issue of our hearts is that we're rebels. So how do we go from being rebels to being repentant people that cry out to God and ask God to help us and change us? Well, I think if we look at the story of Jonah, in summary, we can look at Jonah in three specific ways. Because on the one hand, we see Jonah in the first part. Jonah flees from God and he's caught by this storm. Goes through this unbelievable storm. We'll see that next week. So he uh, flees from God and he's caught in the storm. The second thing we see with Jonah is that he fights against God and ultimately gets swallowed by this great fish. Right? That's the part of Jonah that everybody knows about. Uh, and then finally we see at the very end of the book is that Jonah, even though he does everything that God asked him to do, in other words, externally Jonah looks like the good little prophet he should have been at the beginning, right? But God knows his heart. And internally, Jonah is totally rebellious in his heart and does not want to do what God wanted him to do at the very first. And at the end, God still pours grace upon Jonah nonetheless. And like I said earlier, a lot of us were just like Jonah. So how do we go from that rebellious way to being somebody that's not like that? Well, what we need to do is we need to realize, like I said earlier, the hero of the story is not Jonah, it's God. And ultimately, everything, if we understand the Bible clearly, everything in the Bible points by way of trajectory to the greatest display of God, which is Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene. And so what we see, unlike Jonah, we see Jesus, he comes. He comes into this world. He comes amongst people that are not like him. He's holy. We're not. He's good. We're not. He's giving. We hoard. He blesses us. We want to protect our little blessing, keep it within our own little circle. Jesus comes to a bunch of people that are totally unlike him. He doesn't flee and ultimately is cast into the greatest storm. The only storm that really has any potential to utterly, ultimately crush anybody. And this wasn't just a storm that he just happened into. He throws himself into that storm on the cross. He gives himself entirely over to it. Submits himself over to it. Even though he doesn't flee from God. With Jesus we see he doesn't fight against God. He completely gives himself over to the Lord. In the garden Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. 
He totally, utterly submits himself to the plan and the path of God, even though that plan and that path involved not being swallowed by a whale, but by being swallowed by death. Death would swallow him. It would consume him. It would destroy him. And then finally what we see with Jesus is that Jesus doesn't fail. Even though Jonah failed, Jesus doesn't fail. Even though God withholds grace from his own son. Unlike Jonah, he was given much grace and he failed. Jesus didn't fail and was withheld grace. He cries on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the cry of an abandoned son that's deeply still, nonetheless devoted to the will and the intention in the heart of his father. Why? Why did Jesus do that? For you. For me. Because of love. To rescue us. Look, you and I, we can do the right stuff. But we can do the right stuff in a way that's just wicked. Meaning our attitudes are impure. Our attitudes are wrong. And that's not pleasing to God. But what Jesus does is he comes to change what we desire. This is why the gospel is absolutely imperative to our transformation. Because if we just simply stop right here and says, don't be like Jonah and go obey God every single time God asks you to do it. Later, have a nice day. What's going to empower you to do that? What's going to help you to do that? Willpower? If that's what motivates us, guilt? Guilt's a very powerful motivator. You'll walk out of here feeling really bad or really ashamed, but you will try really hard, and at some point when you fail, and you will fail, you will condemn yourself, and you will be your worst critic. It's not sustainable. Or you may succeed for a short amount of time, and in the period of time, the interim in which you will succeed, you will look at everybody else around you who is failing, and you will judge them, and you will be critical of them, and you will put them down, and you will condemn them, and your heart will be wicked. But nobody will know, because your deeds are really righteous. Look, your religious people need to repent, turn from their ways, and turn to this good God. Religious people also need to repent from their righteous deeds that they hold on to and trust in and turn to this good God that says he'll wash and cleanse. We're going to respond. My job is just to tell you what God says. I hope to do it the best that I can. I'm not perfect. I try to help, try to make it clear. Our job, your job, is to respond. We want to respond right now. I'm going to pray, pray over you guys. What I'd ask for you guys to do is let's all stand. I want to pray over us, and I want you to think about what are the areas in your heart, in your life right now that maybe you have been resisting God. Maybe there's areas in which God is calling you, challenging you to love people, to serve people, to give yourself away to other people, to be a, an agency, an agent for through which not only has he blessed you, but through you, you'll be a blessing. And yet you've been resistant. Your big concern is not fear of Failure. Oh, I'm going to fail. I'm not going to do it. Jonah's big fear was failure of success. He was afraid that if he went and told these people about God's grace, they would actually repent, and therefore they would be brought into the same family relationship as he was. He was afraid of success. He didn't want to see the repentance. 
The real issue is that God wants our heart, not just our actions, not just what we do, but our hearts. Don't run from God. Don't flee from God. You can flee from God in this room. You're like, how can you flee from God in this room? Because you know what? You can sing words to a song, but your, your heart's not in it. Like the Bible describes, it's like lip service. We just, our lips are moving, but our hearts are thinking of a million other things that we'd rather be doing than sitting next to people that don't have a good voice. Just being honest. The point of the matter is, is that God wants our hearts to change. And what changes our hearts is understanding the power and the depth and the brevity and the weightiness of what he's done for us. To know that you are loved in spite of what you've done. To know that you're pursued in spite of how you fled. Doesn't that change you? Doesn't that do something to your heart that says, I want to surrender? That's what the gospel does. I'm going to pray. We have some rugs in the front. You can get down on your hands and knees if you want. Just get before God. We have communion in the back. We'll have some people available that would love to pray for you. Don't miss the opportunity for whatever it is that's going on in your life. We have people that want to pray for you guys. Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. We want to respond now by singing, confessing sin partaking of communion, reminding ourselves of what Jesus did for us and asking you, God, to just change what only you can change, which is our heart. Rearrange our desires. Do it, God.